Well, our text for this morning uh, is going to be taken from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Uh, please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermonides. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy in the Lord on that day. And you know well all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, in 2017, I received a Christmas gift from my dad. It's right here in my hand. And this particular Christmas gift is very special to me. You see, in 2017, my dad gave me this old copy of Herbert Prochnow's book, The Public Speaker's Treasure Chest, and it's subtitled, A Compendium of Source Material to Make Your Speech Sparkle. Now, now the reason that this particular gift in this book is special to me isn't because of the author, and it isn't necessarily because of the subject matter. The reason that this particular book is special to me is because of who this book belonged to before it belonged to me. It belonged to my grandfather, the Reverend Norman Walter. You see, my grandfather, he served as a missionary and as a pastor to the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church from about 1955 to his death in 2006. 
And on the inside of this book, when my dad gave it to me, this is what he wrote. I release this heirloom, Eric, into your library with hopeful expectation that you will find within its contents a morsel of nostalgia that may perhaps reach back into the heart and soul of your grandfather's life's work. Countless souls have been impacted by your grandfather's messages, not because of his mastery of prose and humor, of which he excelled, but by the revelation of the character of the man, Christ, within his messages. This old book stays in my library, not simply because it's a resource, though maybe an outdated resource, but because it is an heirloom. It is something that has been specially handed down to me, something that reminds me of God's grace toward my family in ages past and of the legacy of faith that I belong to, a legacy that I hope and I pray that my children will pass on to their children. Legacy is such a profound idea when we think about it that our lives will have a lasting impact on the coming generations. Perhaps it's a longing that you have felt as you yourself have begun to sift through your own things and to think about your kids or your grandkids. Or perhaps it's a longing that you have sensed as you have heard older generations recount old stories or begin to hand on to you those old heirlooms from their parents or their grandparents. The truth is, every single one of us receives some kind of legacy because everybody is leaving some kind of legacy. The only question is, what kind of legacy are you receiving? And what kind of legacy are you going to leave? These are the questions that the Apostle Paul is asking in 2 Timothy. This morning, we're beginning a new sermon series in the letter of 2 Timothy. And the title of this series is Guard the Deposit, A Call to Gospel Legacy. And at the heart of this series for the next five weeks, and at the heart of 2 Timothy, is the conviction that God has saved us and he has called us not to simply leave an earthly legacy, but to leave a gospel legacy for the generations to come. Now, the, the reason that this idea of legacy is on Paul's mind in 2 Timothy is because it was written toward the end of his life. You see, church, church history tells us that after Paul was released from his imprisonment in Rome, which we can read about in Acts, after he was released from his first imprisonment, he traveled and continued to preach and to teach about Jesus. But during the reign of Emperor Nero, he was re-arrested he was sent back to Rome, he was placed in prison, and he was given a death sentence. And it was from the darkness of this dungeon, and it was in light of that impending execution that Paul pens this letter of 2 Timothy to his friend, his longtime friend, Timothy. Timothy was a young man. He was from the small town of Lystra, and through Paul's missionary journeys, Timothy heard the gospel concerning Jesus and became a follower of Jesus. Timothy also became a close companion of Paul, and Acts tells us that he journeyed with Paul all over the known world. He helped plant churches. He helped support the churches that were planted. And eventually, we learn in 1 Timothy that Timothy was installed as the pastor to oversee the churches that were in the region of Ephesus. And so Paul 
thinking of his dear friend, this young man, Timothy, and considering his own life, writes Timothy this one last letter to encourage him and to instruct him. And at the heart of this instruction are the words, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You see, the Greek word here that's translated good deposit what might also be translated the treasure. Each generation of God's people, in Paul's day, in Timothy's day, in our day, each generation has been entrusted with the treasure that is the gospel message about Christ. And each and every generation is called for the sake of God's glory and the sake of the next generation to keep it and to guard it. But now when we hear this call to keep and to guard, to be entrusted with the gospel message, we must begin to ask this question of how. How do we guard this treasure of the gospel message? And how are we going to leave a gospel legacy for the next generation? This is the foundation of Paul's message throughout 2 Timothy, and it is particularly Paul's focus in our passage this morning. But before we dive into this word, let's go ahead and take a moment and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, for preserving it down to this very day and delivering it to us this morning. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would be illuminating our hearts to understand it, that you, Lord Jesus, would loom large in our imaginations, that the gospel would captivate us, that we would be compelled and enabled and equipped by your spirit and your word to guard the good deposit that you have entrusted to us. Help us to understand these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins speaking to Timothy by saying, if he, Paul, or Timothy are going to leave a gospel legacy, first and foremost, Paul and Timothy need to cherish the gospel message. I want you to look in your Bibles at verses 8 through 13, and I want you to notice how Paul kind of commits himself to a run-on sentence. He's focusing exclusively on the gospel message itself. But before you read it over, I want you to ask yourself this question. What is the gospel? How would you answer that question? Take a moment and try to answer that in your own mind or maybe to write it down somewhere. How would you answer the question, what is the gospel? Because I find it fascinating that as we come to these verses of 8 through 13, that Paul, even though he is writing to Timothy, a man who journeyed with him and helped plant many churches, a man who is currently the pastor of these churches in Ephesus, Paul, when he began to speak to Timothy about the gospel, did not assume anything. He goes into great detail to remind Timothy of what he already knows. In fact, in verse 13... Paul says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. And what Paul is saying in, in verse 13 is not, Timothy, follow my lifestyle. What he is saying is, remember the exact words that I used, the words that I used to define or to describe the gospel message about Jesus. He's using this word sound, okay, as in the sense of healthy, what Paul is saying is that these words, the gospel message, uncorrupted, is the words that will bring spiritual life. They are the only words which bring 
spiritual life. Now, he's not thinking about it in the sense of an incantation, but he is saying that the content really matters. That if we are going to cherish the gospel message, we need to know what it is made of. Now, I was reminded of this, uh, of the importance of understanding what things are made of a couple of years ago when I, as I was telling the kids here, wanted to make Niflis, okay? Now, it's important to understand I have had Niflis probably hundreds of times in my life. I think that they are delicious. I have had them made for me by my grandmother. I have had them made for me by my mother, okay? But a couple of years ago, I sat down and I said, you know what? I want to make myself a bowl of Niflis and I want to share it with my boys. And you know what I discovered? I did not know how to make Niflis. I had no idea what the recipe was. I was a little horrified and a little embarrassed as I had to call my mom and ask her to send me the recipe and then walk me through how to make these Niflis, these very simple German dumplings. Now, thankfully, my mom was very gracious and she helped me. And I am okay at making Niflis and getting better, but I had to recognize that though I had been around Niflis my whole life, I had never really internalized what they were made of. I think many Christians are in the same boat, not about Niflis, but about the gospel. We spend years of our lives sitting under the preaching and the teaching of God's word. We spend years possibly reading Christian book after Christian book, and we never stop to ask ourselves, am I internalizing this? Do I know the gospel message for myself? And can I share it with others, especially our children? We maybe need to ask ourselves the question, do we know the ingredients of the gospel message? Because this is what Paul gives us in verses 8 through 10. I want you to look there. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, that is Jesus, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now let, let's look at these verses and approach them like a recipe. Let's think about all the ingredients that Paul is putting together, these very intentional words, to describe and to define the gospel. The first ingredient to the gospel message is that the gospel message is about God, not about you. I want you to notice here that Paul's description is focusing on God's actions. In verse 9, it says, God saved us. In verse 9, it says, God called us to a holy calling. Later, it says, God gave us, not because of our own works, not because of the things that we have been doing or the principles that we have been living by. It is simply because of God's own purpose and his own grace. The gospel is not first and foremost about living a good Christian life. It is about what God has done for the sake of sinners. That he has saved us from his wrath for our sin. That he has transformed our lives because of what he has provided. 
First and foremost, the first ingredient of the gospel is that it is a message about what God has done. But Paul goes on to describe more ingredients to this message because it's not simply about God's purpose and God's plans and God's grace that are expressed generally. He says that this grace was given in Christ Jesus. The gospel message is not just about God in general. It is about Christ specifically. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, I delivered to you what was of first importance, Christ crucified. The gospel is not about us. It is about Christ for us. Paul says that this gift of salvation and this gift of our calling as God's people through Christ extends even back before we were born, before anything was even created. He says, before the ages began. There's this sense in which as we look at the history of the world, what we are seeing is the working out of God's providence to bring about the gospel message throughout history and now in our lives because Christ has come. In the Old Testament, Christ was being promised. Christ was being pointed to. Christ was being alluded to and shadowed. And now the real has arrived. In the first century, in history, it says that Jesus was made manifest. And so the gospel is not about religious principles. It is about how the eternal son of God became man in history. So that by coming, he would bring us salvation and bring us purpose. And the last thing that Paul says, this final ingredient, is the what this does. God's purposes throughout history and Christ coming in history to accomplish our salvation. Now he says the final ingredient is what that provides us as God's people in our lives. The gospel message is about God, it's about Christ, and it brings eternal life. I want you to notice here in verse 10 how Paul explains what Jesus is coming accomplished. He says three things. Abolished death. That the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus abolished death for God's people. Not that we won't die, but that death is no longer the end. That we will overcome death because our sins have been forgiven in Christ. That we can trust that through Jesus, death for us has been abolished. We will not experience the wrath of God for our sin. We will not experience the pains of hell for our sins. Those have been abolished through Christ. Theologians talk about this as our justification. That because of Christ's work, we have been justified and made right with God. But Paul also says that it transforms God's purpose in our lives. It says that Christ has brought life. And he's not talking about eternal life in the sense of when we die, we go to heaven. He is saying that now in Christ, because of what he has done, we receive this holy calling that he talks about earlier in the passage. Theologians call this sanctification. It's God's purposes being worked out in our lives by the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about in just a moment. 
And the last thing that Paul says is that because of what Christ has done, he has brought us immortality. That as Peter says in his letter, we now, because of what Christ has done, get to participate in the divine nature that God has provided through Christ, that our bodies and our lives might be glorified with Christ when he returns. Our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification, all wrapped up in this same message, the gospel, this treasure that has been entrusted to us. This is why I shared John 3.16 with these children, because it is and will continue to be a fantastic summary of the gospel message. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. If you memorize John 3.16, you are well on your way to internalizing the recipe that is the gospel message, the heirloom that God has given to us. We need to give ourselves to knowing the gospel to such an extent that we can preach the gospel to ourselves when we are in moments of despair. We need to acquaint ourselves with the gospel to an extent that we can proclaim the gospel to our neighbors. We need to familiarize ourselves with the ingredients of the gospel to the extent that we can teach our children while we're driving in the car, while we're sitting at the dinner table, and while we're in church. All these things describe what it means to cherish the gospel in our lives. This is the message that Paul says we should not be ashamed of. But let me ask you this question. Why would Paul be compelled to say that? I just explained and described the gospel. Why would anybody hear this message about God's plan to save his people, of Christ coming to actually accomplish that salvation for God's people, and of God actually working out that salvation in our lives by the Spirit? Why would anybody be ashamed of that? That's amazing news. And Paul says in verse 11, it is because when we cherish the gospel, it will transform our lives, and because of that, we will suffer. Notice what Paul says in verse 11. Paul says, For the gospel, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer. You see, Paul was appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher of the gospel message. As an apostle, someone who is sent on behalf of another as a representative, okay, an apostle is someone specifically in church history that Jesus sent to begin the church work and to deliver the gospel message in the first generation. We no longer have apostles in our generation. That has been firmly established. But we all in our own way are called to bear witness as the apostles were called to bear witness to the person of Jesus. Paul is also called a preacher meaning he heralded, he proclaimed the message at any opportunity that was afforded him. It got him into a lot of trouble if you read Acts. We may not be called to preach, like say Pastor Mark or myself or other pastors will preach, but all of us are not only called to bear witness to Christ, we're called to proclaim Christ with our words to our neighbors and to those who don't know Christ, to proclaim Christ to those in our lives who are fellow Christians and need building up and encouraging. 
Which leads us to the last one. Cherishing the gospel in our lives looks like bearing witness, proclaiming the message, and helping others understand God's word. That's what it means to be a teacher. Now, you may not be gifted in the sense of a gifted teacher for a Sunday school class, but each one of us is called to learn the intricacies of God's word for ourselves and so that we can explain it to other people. And it's as Paul did this, as he bore witness to Jesus, as he proclaimed the gospel, and as he taught others the details of God's word, Paul experienced suffering and persecution and was arrested and imprisoned. There is a direct connection between cherishing the gospel and suffering. This is why in order to leave a gospel legacy in our lives, we not only need to cherish the message itself, but we also need to cherish the gospel heritage that we belong to. I want you to look at verses 1 through 7 here where Paul begins his letter to Timothy. I want you to notice that he says in these, in these first seven verses a lot about Timothy's history, a lot about his personal history and about their relationship. Paul in verse 8 will say, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of me, Jesus's prisoner. That means someone who is in prison on behalf of Jesus. In verses 1 and 2, Paul describes Timothy as his beloved son. I don't think he's thinking about him in simply like bloodline language. I think what he is saying is, you, Timothy, are the fruit of my ministry and my close companion in this ministry. I look at you as my brother in Christ, whom God used me to bring you to him. So I see you as a spiritual child. See yourself as connected to me as this spiritual son. In verse 3, Paul says that he has served God as did his ancestors. In the Old Testament, we are not seeing something detached from Christianity. What we are seeing is the story of God's people under the covenant of God's grace, but expressed before Christ had come. And so as we read the Old Testament, we are not reading those people who are foreign to us. We are reading people who are very much like us in their life experience, maybe not culturally speaking, but spiritually speaking, and very much connected to us because of our relationship to God through Christ. But Paul goes a little bit further and a little bit more personal in verse 5. I want you to notice in verse 5 that Paul draws out this heritage of faith that Timothy belongs to. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Cherishing the gospel in Timothy's life meant remembering that he was not the first person in his family to be drawn into the family of God. Christian parents, we have been given a tremendous blessing that we and our children have received the covenant promises of God. That does not guarantee our children's salvation. 
As you see, Paul's emphasizing that the sincere faith that he is thankful for in Timothy belongs to Timothy himself. It is Timothy's sincere profession of faith in Christ. But we have been given this tremendous opportunity to show our children and to think for ourselves about the heritage of faith that we belong to. We're called to think about our Christian testimony of those that God used to draw us to himself, that we might hear the gospel, believe, and be saved. Cherishing the gospel and our gospel heritage means thinking about the blessings that it is to be in a Christian family, to think about the extended spiritual family that we belong to as Grace Church, within the PCA denomination, and throughout church history. This is why there is such great benefit in reading Christian biographies and reading church history. We are not simply reading about things that happen to happen in the past. We are reading a family book of what happened in our spiritual family. I think about it in a strange way, kind of like going through old photo albums. The other day, I was down in the church library as we're reimagining it and reworking it to come out soon, and I stumbled upon this book. And it was filled with pictures from the year 2009 to 2014 of women's ministry at this church. And it was a delight to sit with some women in the office this week and just look back at these pictures of God at work forming and shaping his family over generations, some of whom are still in this room worshiping the Lord this morning. Some of them are with Jesus in glory. It was a delight this week to look at this photo album and to see the Christian heritage that we as Grace Church come from. How are we going to relate to this heritage? How are we going to relate to this gospel message? And Paul in verse 8 gives a very clear application Cherishing the gospel and cherishing that uh, heritage that we come from, that gospel heritage, it looks like being willing to share in the suffering. That's what he says in verse 8. If you look with me, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We can share in that suffering as we pray for those who are being persecuted for the gospel's sake, grieving with them the pain that they are experiencing and interceding on their behalf, that the gospel might go forth in the midst of that suffering. We can share in that suffering by offering physical support. As we discover that there are needs within our church family or needs within the church family, broadly speaking, thinking of missions around the world, that we have a unique opportunity to band together to support them, to suffer alongside with them and really embrace this gospel heritage. But I think the most acute way that we can do this, I think it was acute for Timothy as he looked at the challenges that he faced, and it will be for us as well, is the willingness to suffer for the gospel in our own lives, in our own generation, and in our own place. This is why I think Paul in verse 6 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 
Paul really wants Timothy to understand that he has this tremendous blessing of the gospel and therefore a tremendous duty as a member of God's family to carry this message forward faithfully because not everybody in Paul's life did that. At the end of this first chapter, there's a heartbreaking story that Paul shares with Timothy. If you look at verses 15 through 18, Paul says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygeus and Hermonides, excuse me. Paul is pointing out these two men, and he is saying, in Asia, people heard of my imprisonment for the gospel, and they turned away from me. They turned away from the gospel in shame and said, we do not want to be associated with that suffering. We would rather have a different kind of Christianity. That is the challenge that we face in every generation. The question of what kind of legacy are we going to lead? What kind of legacy are we going to cherish? There's another man that's shared with at the end of this passage, Onesiphorus. His name is a mouthful, but I want you to notice the testimony of his commitment to Paul and to the gospel. He says, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know well all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Paul is reflecting on this man's care of him and saying this man understood what it meant to cherish the gospel and how that was connected to cherishing his connection with Paul who was suffering for the sake of the gospel. So how will we leave a gospel legacy? By cherishing the gospel, knowing it, loving it, learning about it, carrying it forward, and by cherishing the heritage from which we come from. Now, the weight of this, I think, can feel overwhelming. If we think about this being our sole responsibility, that we must do this, and you would be right, that if that is how we approach receiving and leaving a gospel legacy, it will break us. Because I want you to notice here that all throughout this first chapter, Paul has been saying all along how we will leave a gospel legacy. To weak and ordinary people, he says it will be accomplished not by our work, but by the power of God in verse 8. And it will happen as we rest in the faith and in the love that is in Christ Jesus. That's in verse 13. And it will happen as we depend upon the Holy Spirit as Paul commands us to do so in verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I am excited for us to continue to explore this idea of gospel legacy. Paul is going to continue to explain how we do this practically within a church community and within our own lives. But this is the foundation. 
A gospel legacy is left when we cherish the gospel message and we cherish the gospel heritage of which we belong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that you have shown us in our lives and in so many years prior to us even being born. Thank you that your plans and your purposes for us and for history cannot be thwarted, that what you have declared and decreed will be accomplished by your good, holy, and perfect will. We thank you that, Jesus, you came, that you lived the life that we could not live in perfect obedience to God's law. You died the death that we deserve to die for our sin. You were raised from the dead for our justification. And you are seated at the right hand of the Father so that in you, Lord Jesus, our salvation and calling has been firmly accomplished. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for waking us up in our lives, giving us eyes to see, connecting us through faith alone to this heritage that we have now received. Help us to delight and cherish it for the sake of your glory and for the sake of the next generation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.